0: Well, good morning once again, church. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. We return today to our series on the book of 1 Peter as we come to the last three verses of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. We've seen thus far in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, that suffering is the Christian's path to glory. Even as we follow our Lord. Even as we follow the Savior. And one of the great ironies of redemption is that we are blessed to suffer for the cause of Christ. Peter tells us this. He says, you are blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, in our text today, the apostle reminds us that judgment begins with the household of God. Judgment begins with the household of God. Therefore... We must be faithful to follow God's commands and to keep to our duty. If God's judgment comes to God's house, how much more then will it be poured out upon the world? And so today, even as we contemplate this text, this text is a great warning to those of you who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we are reminded that our God is faithful to such that we may entrust our very souls to His safe keeping. And didn't we just sing, "Great is thy faithfulness." And so Peter reminds us of our great, our glorious and our faithful God. And so let's read the word of God together. First Peter chapter 4, I read verses 12 through 19. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Amen. This is the word of God. As you know, Peter has much to say to us in his first epistle about suffering. But the apostle does not allow us to dwell too long on this aspect of the Christian life. Yes, he tells us, It is a reality, but he directs directs us to God for our hope. We are directed today even to our faithful creator. We are directed to the one in whom we can entrust our souls. The apostle is not teaching us here to trust God as if to take up the mantra, let go and let God. Peter is instead teaching us to keep to our Christian duty in light of God's present judgment to continue to press in to the Christian life in light of present and future judgment like a child who has absolute confidence in the one who is holding him so also do we trust in our faithful creator to judge us and to keep our souls safe for our entrance into glory by his teaching here Peter reminds us one of the great hymns of the church again, as we sang just a moment ago, which is the title of my sermon today. Great is thy faithfulness. Consider with me in the first place, judgment and the church. And we see this both in verses 17 and in verse 18. Notice what Peter says in verse 17 this morning. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. As we consider the nature of God's judgment upon the church, we remember that Peter is writing to elect exiles. We we remember that Peter is writing to those who are God's adopted children. And so as we think about the context, as we think about the nature of this judgment, we must remember this important fact. This truth has to frame our understanding as to the nature of God's judgment over the church. But indeed, Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God, where it begins with the church. This statement implies that there is a present judgment and that there is a future judgment for the church. Peter is, in the first place, referring to God's judgment over the church in this age. In this age, where judgment begins with the household of of God, So we ask the question, in what sense or in what way is the church judged in this age? Well, I think the answer can be found in this, that God judges the church in his expectation that we follow his commands and that we live according to the rules of the new covenant. He judges us according to the standard of his holy law that he has commanded us to follow. We are accountable to live according to the commands of Christ, because we are God's household. Peter says this same thing in First Peter chapter one and verse 17. First Peter one and verse 17. Notice what he says. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter directs us to conduct ourselves in fear in light of God's present judgment. During our stay, during your stay on earth, you are responsible to conduct yourselves with a reverential and a filial fear. That is the fear of sonship. Yes, you are adopted sons and daughters of Christ, but we come before God. We live before the face of God with a kind of holy and reverential fear. Again, for me as the church are the household of God. Peter's reference to the church as the household of God helps us to understand the nature and even the structure of God's church. The church is a spiritual household. It is a spiritual household. It is the place of God's dwelling. God's gracious presence is with the church by the Spirit of Christ. And thus Christ is the head of the household. He is the head and the king of the church. And as Christ's people, we are under his headship. We are part of his household. Therefore, we take our orders. We follow his commands. And this is how Christ exercises his power as the head and king of the church. He governs the church. He rules the church. He gives instructions to the church. So that they might be followed. Paul says the same thing in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, excuse me, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. Paul says this in his letter I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so Peter writes to us for the same reason. Peter writes to us so that we might know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. God has expectations for us as his people. He has commands that we are not at liberty to just set aside because we don't like them. But we must follow the commands of our God. And so God judges us according to our conduct in his house. And we should be reminded of this. Even as we think about the doctrine of adoption... That this judgment that Peter speaks about is God's fatherly, loving judgment over his own household. This is God's fatherly and loving judgment over his own household, over his own children. This is not the judgment of a cold and distant king who cares nothing for his subjects. But this is the judgment of a God who loves his own children. Who has given up his own son So that these adopted children, these adopted sons and daughters might be saved by the blood of his own son. And so knowing that we are under God's fatherly judgment, his loving judgment, we must seek to respond to God's commands with obedience. With a loving and joyful and humble and submissive obedience. And so be reminded of this, dear Christian, even as we think about these commands All these commands that Peter gives to us throughout his first epistle. We are reminded that the law no longer stands to condemn us. You see these commands are not given to us as condemnation. For we have been freed from the condemnation of the law because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly for those of us who have believed in him. And so this is what Peter is writing about here. This is what he is teaching us Even so, we are reminded of the perfect work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are to do good works according to the third use of the law. In coming to the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves because none of us have arrived in the Christian faith. None of us are perfect. There is only one who is perfect. And so the call for self-examination implies repentance from sin. We come to the supper. We come to the means of grace for renewal because we need the means of grace. There are no pure churches under heaven, but all are subject to error because of remaining sin that still exists within each of us. But having been justified in Christ, we are to grow in the grace of sanctification, knowing this, that judgment begins with the household of God. And indeed, these ought to be sobering words for us. We ought to think carefully about what these words mean. Your words, church, and your works must agree with your confession of faith. We are reminded of that in the ordinance of baptism, aren't we? That when one is baptized, that person is committing to follow Jesus Christ all the days of their life. And so your words and your works must agree with your confession. In the church, in your family, in private, Come to God with a heart full of praise and thanksgiving for the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ. Seek the glory of Christ, not your own glory. Calvin writes this, that God is the judge of the whole world. Yet, he would have his providence to be especially acknowledged in the government of his own church. Judgment begins with the household of God. Indeed, God has a most wise purpose for his judgment upon the church. Even as we would ask, why is it, O God, that you would judge your own people? But God's judgment is intended to purify and to refine us. It is intended to prepare us for that coming glory that we will experience when we see Jesus Christ face to face. It is in this light that Peter can cite the scripture. With reference to the difficulty of salvation in verse 18, in the first part of verse 18. And we should understand this, that salvation is not difficult for God to accomplish. Salvation is not difficult for God to accomplish as if if he were exhausted by uh, that salvation. But certainly we know that our salvation was accomplished through the blood, through the sweat, and through the tears of Christ according to his human nature. But indeed it is not difficult for our God to accomplish. But it is with difficulty. It is through suffering that we enter into the kingdom of God. And this is what Peter, Peter has been talking to us about throughout his entire epistle. Reminding us that we are elect exiles. That in this life we will experience trouble and trial and difficulty. Yes, according to the will of God, even at the hands of wicked and unholy men. But it is through many trials. It is through many trials that we enter into the kingdom of God. And it is through all of these things, through God's judgment upon the church, through our obedience to his commands, yes, even through the suffering that we experience in this life, that we see God's judgment upon the church. Consider in the second place this morning, God's judgment and the world. God's judgment and the world. And we see this in verses 17 and 18 as well. We see here in verses 17 and 18 a very sharp and clear contrast between God's judgment on the church and God's judgment on the world. These two forms of judgment are not the same. And Peter shows us that very clearly. Notice the second half of verse 17. If God's own household is judged, what will be the outcome or the result for those who do not obey the gospel? What a question that Peter poses here in the text. It's a a rhetorical question, because the answer is obvious. (coughs) Notice the second half of verse 18 now, and he poses another question. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner in the final judgment? What a second question he poses here. In this age, the wicked may prosper, but in the end it will not be so. In the final and future eschatological judgment, the sheep and then the goats will be judged. All men will stand before the tribunal of God and give an account for their actions. Turn with me if you would to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we have a glorious and a terrifying picture of the final judgment with all men gathered around the great throne of the king. Beginning in verse 31, let's read through the end of the chapter. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, or did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here in Matthew 25, we have the church. We have the church and the world depicted as sheep and as goats. Those who love Christ are the sheep and will be separated from the goats on the final day. There will be reward and blessing for the sheep, for those who love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Notice the Apostle's allusion to Proverbs 11.31 in verse 18. I'll read to you what Proverbs 11.31 says. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? What will become of the ungodly sinner in the final judgment? Spurgeon puts it this way. If God puts even the gold into the fire, that is, his own people, what is to become of the dross? As we see in Matthew 25, the sinner's reward for wickedness is the justice of God. The outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and indeed it is a command, as Peter tells us here, is the wrath of God. It is the justice of God. And so, dear unbeliever, let me speak to you today. You are morally accountable to God for your disobedience to Him you are morally accountable to a holy God. God is the judge of all the earth, and he has declared you guilty in his divine court. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you if you do not turn away from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. We ask the question then, what must a man do to be saved? How can you be spared from the wrath that is certainly to come? You cannot, even by the very best of your works, merit pardon with God. You are not a good person, despite what the world may tell you. You must look to the only one who is righteous. You must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is your only hope for salvation. For only Jesus Christ has been actively and passively obedient to the law of God. Only Jesus Christ has a perfect righteousness. That can be imputed to you so that you will be declared righteous in the sight of God. You must believe in the person and work of the Savior for indeed he is the gospel. He is the good news. Mark begins his record with an accounting of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, which is the gospel. Mark 1.1 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes on in Mark 1, 14 and 15 to write this. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying to you today, yes, through his word and by his spirit, repent of your sins and believe in me. This is the word of the Savior to you. This is not a suggestion. Let me be clear about that. The gospel is a command. God is commanding you to turn away from your sins and believe in the gospel. Disobedience to this command is a great sin that has great consequences. If we learn nothing else from Matthew 25, we must learn that. And so do not refuse to submit, but believe and receive the mercy of God. For Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. For it is in Christ and in Christ alone that you will find grace and righteousness and peace and pardon and justification and acceptance. These are the spiritual blessings that are found by believing in Jesus Christ. It is only through the narrow gate of Christ that you will find life. He is the only door of access to God. According to our our Lord's words in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Believe in Jesus Christ today. Consider in the third place suffering and the Creator. And for this, we turn our attention back to the church in verse 19, suffering and the creator. Notice what verse 19 says as the apostle once again addresses the church. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Dear Christian, if you suffer for righteousness sake, be assured it is according to the will of God. Nothing takes place in heaven or on earth that is not by the will of God. Everything that happens is God's providence. Everything that happens is by his sovereign word, by his sovereign command, by the holy and eternal counsel of his will. Suffering temporarily for Christ's sake is far better than suffering eternally for unbelief. Do not envy the prosperity of the wicked, but glory in suffering for righteousness' sake. For your reward will be great in heaven. This is God's promise to His people. According to the example of Christ, then, we entrust our souls to God. We entrust our souls to God. Think of what Peter says about the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Lord Jesus Christ entrusted himself to God, so that even while he himself was being reviled, he did not revile in return, but he trusted in God. We can think about the very last words of our Lord upon the cross of Calvary. His words were words of trust. They were words of trust trust. What were the words that he uttered in Luke 23 and verse 46? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last breath. Christ entrusted his human soul or his spirit to God. We find Peter, excuse me, we find Stephen, the first martyr of the church, saying almost the exact same thing. Having committed his spirit into the hands of God, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Dear Christian, you must entrust your soul to your faithful creator, to your faithful redeemer. For when your body perishes, you will not sleep. Did our Lord say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? Here is the power of God to preserve His his people. Here is the power of God to cause us to persevere such that we will enter into His presence. Upon the death of your body, your soul will immediately enter into paradise where you will behold the face of God in light and in glory. In that intermediate state, you will await the full redemption and reuniting of soul and body which will take place at the second coming, at the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So commit your spirit into the faithful hands of God. Commit yourself to God. He will keep and preserve you. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like the Savior, you must entrust your soul to God for spiritual safekeeping. For indeed, God is the caretaker of our souls. He is our faithful judge and our faithful creator. From creation to judgment, the triune God has the whole world in his hands. Christian life is in many ways like sailing the stormy ocean. We may face challenges en route to our destination, but we must know we have a trustworthy captain who will lead us to the safety of port. Christ is our pilot. Christ is our captain. Christ is our leader. He is sovereign over all things. No one can say to God, oh God, what have you done? No one can ward off God's hand. No one can hinder God's will from being accomplished. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? No one can bring a charge of injustice against God. This is our hope in suffering. This is our hope. Our consolation in trial. That our God is faithful. He is faithful. And God's faithfulness is his covenant steadfastness. He will never abandon or fail to love his children. For he loves us with a perfect love. A love that is consonant with his own nature. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 verses 1-5 through 5, and I want you to see how the psalmist here reflects upon the covenant faithfulness of God Notice his confidence here Beginning in verse 1 He says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy Ones. Here is the faithfulness of God to his people. Here is the faithfulness of God to bring about the seed of the woman who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent and accomplish a perfect salvation for us. Here is God's covenant of faithfulness. The promise of God to his people is this I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is covenant language, this is not contractual language. I will be your God, therefore, you will be my people. The idea that's communicated in this psalm is not, I will be your God if you will become my people. The promise of God is this, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And indeed, this is an immutable promise according to the immutable nature of our God. So that even if we are faithless, God remains covenantally faithful. And indeed, aren't we prone to wonder? Aren't we prone to walk away from the covenant? To violate the terms of the covenant? Even so, we are reminded that Christ has fulfilled the covenant That there has been a new covenant that has been established, and it is indeed in the blood of Christ. And so as we reflect upon what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, as we reflect upon what the psalmist says to us about the faithfulness of God in Psalm 89, aren't you thankful for the faithfulness of God? Ask yourself the question, where would you be without the faithfulness of God? God's faithfulness reaches to the heavens, and God's promise is sure because Christ is our surety. He is the guarantee of the new covenant. Our God is faithful to remind us of our duty to Him. He is faithful to remind us that judgment begins with His own household. Our God is faithful to send out the gospel of grace to needy sinners, and indeed, our God is faithful will preserve our souls even through death. In all of these ways we see the faithfulness of our great triune God. Did we not sing earlier, great is thy faithfulness. O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is the faithfulness of our triune God. Amen. Our great and glorious God, indeed, we join with the hymn writer to sing the song of heaven. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your covenant steadfastness towards us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, for the kindness that you have shown to us. For the kindness that we have experienced at your good hand even this Lord's Day. We thank you, O God, for reminding us that you indeed judge the church as a loving Father. As the King who rules over the church with all sovereignty and with all power. And we thank you, O Lord, for your kindness in sending out the word of the gospel today to those in our midst who do not know your Son. How we pray, O Lord, that you would change their hearts, that you would move them to believe in the gospel, that they might be effectually called and thereafter regenerated to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, O God, for the reminder of your faithfulness, that you will preserve us even through bodily death, that you will escort our souls into glory and thereafter reunite our departed souls with our bodies when your Son returns. Would you help us, O Lord, to have confidence in You. Would You help our hearts, O Lord, to be encouraged as we contemplate You, our most glorious and our most most faithful God. We thank You, O God, for who You are. We thank You, O God, for summing up all of these things in the promise of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It is to Him that we give all glory as we pray in His name.